I'm going to be reading from the first chapter of Ruth, reading the whole chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and um, Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Now they lived there about 10 years. Let's see. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion had died, also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find the rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more, any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning.
Good morning, family. As you can tell, I'm getting over a cold. It's not COVID, and, uh, but I have this wonderful smoker's voice <laughs> this morning. But it's really good to be with you all, and um, I'll probably don my mask on afterward and stay a little bit away from you just to make sure I don't spread any germs around. But I'm really glad to be here this morning. We get to, we get to be in the book of Ruth, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. The book of Ruth is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. <clears throat> it's really meaningful to, to me and my wife, Amanda. We have a, a five-panel painting depicting the story of the book of Ruth, Ruth in our dining room. And so every morning we get to see that and be reminded of God's steadfast love that's displayed through this story. And so I'm really excited to go through it with you here and uh, it, it seems appropriate not to fall into stereotypes, but it seems appropriate on Mother's Day to start by showing you pictures of flowers. <clears throat> and I have a very specific reason for showing you these flowers. Um, it's not because they're beautiful, and they really are. They're amazing, right? It's not because of the range of colors and shapes. It, it's not because they have names that I can't pronounce. That's why I put them on the slide. I'm not going to even try. But these flowers are amazing because they grow on the driest place on earth, one of the planet's most inhospitable environments. They grow on the, in the Atacama, Atacama Desert in Chile. And in 2015, this desert had an historic rainfall and more than 200 rare and never-before-seen plants that were lying dormant in the desert bloomed. And it looks like this. Isn't that amazing? And so here in this desert place, the most unlikely place to see beautiful flowers, God produced something beautiful. And in many ways, this is the story of the book of Ruth. It starts out in a really dark and desolate and desert-like place. And God does something beautiful with the story. It starts in an unlikely place in unlikely circumstances, with unlikely people, and we see a story of God as he blooms flowers in the desert. So if you're here this morning and you feel like there's desert places in your life, then this is a good story for you because God loves to do this kind of thing in the desert. And so our, my plan this morning is just to talk about the first five verses in chapter one. We read the whole chapter, so we could give you a little bit more of the story, but we're going to focus on the first five verses of chapter one and talk about the desolation, the darkness that the story starts in. But before we do that, I want to back up and just talk about the story of Ruth as a whole and talk about why we need this story. Like, why, why do we choose to study this story like Dawson says, we don't like to call them sermon series or sermon seasons. Well, why, why do we need this story in this season? What does a story written 3,000 years ago about two widows and a barley farmer named Boaz will meet in chapter 2? What does that have to do with you and me? So let me give you three big reasons we need this story. Number one, it helps us see our story in light of God's big story. The more you zoom out from the story of Ruth, the more you see how significant it is. When you get to the end of the book of Ruth, sorry, spoiler alert, she gets married and has a child. And, and at the end of the book of Ruth, there's a genealogy. 
And that genealogy traces Ruth's son, who's Obed, and Obed's son is Jesse, and Jesse's son is David. And so Ruth doesn't even know that part of God's plan for her little story is that she would be in the genealogy of King David, which was a tremendous honor. King David was, wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible. But when you zoom out even further in the story of Ruth and you get to Matthew in the New Testament, you find that Ruth is not just in the genealogy of David. She's not just David's great grandmother, but she is Jesus's great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandmother. She's in the line of Jesus, the Messiah. And as an English major, I love dramatic irony. I love the fact that we can read this book and see something that Ruth can't see who's in the story. She doesn't realize that her little story is more significant than she ever imagined. And it's significant enough that, that Ruth and Naomi experienced the grace of God in this moment. But God was also weaving their little stories into something so much bigger. And so Ruth's presence in this genealogy is just this remarkable beacon of hope that God is going to include Jews and Gentiles in his story. What an amazing privilege. And so my hope is that as we work through this story, we will wake up in the morning throughout the week and say, God, how are you weaving my little story into your big story? What might you be doing that I just can't see yet? There's a second reason we need this story, and that's because it invites unlikely, ordinary people into a life of love and faithfulness. If you're reading through the Old Testament and you're reading through the book of Judges and then you transition to the book of Ruth, it's a little bit like transitioning from Braveheart to Anne of Green Gables, right? It's a whiplash transition, right? You go from this crazy, these crazy battles with all these warriors and heroes like Deborah and Samson and, and you, you transition from the battlefield to the barley field, right? There's, there's no priests, there's no prophets, there's no kings, there's no warriors, there's just two widows and a man named Boaz. And they're just walking through ordinary life. They're ordinary, everyday people. They experience death and birth, the pain of loneliness and singleness, the joy of marriage, the agony of widowhood, going to work, providing for yourself, providing for others, financial struggles, some romance sprinkled in, and in chapter 3, a mother-in-law who tells you to do crazy things. Like, it's, it's a normal story of everyday people. These are normal people. And it's, it's really encouraging, a joke aside, it is a, such an encouraging story because you and I are, are normal people. Like, we're just normal, most of us are just normal, everyday people. And most of us probably feel like we're I didn't mean the opposite of normal is crazy. I meant the opposite of normal is extraordinary. Most of us probably feel that we are unlikely candidates to make a difference in the world, in our city, in our neighborhood. And this book is a wonderful reminder that God loves to take ordinary people in the everyday stuff of life 
and write beautiful stories. And so this story is for us. But third, and this is the most important one, we need this story because it draws us into the unfailing love of God for his people. In chapter 2, there's two verses that together show us the theme of this book. Chapter 2 and verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then later in verse 20 of chapter 2, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, He, that is the Lord, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And that word kindness is the word has said that Alex just talked about. This no exit strategy, unfailing, all persistent, pursuing covenant love of God for his people. And what Naomi and Ruth discovered is what I hope you and I will discover and rediscover in this book. That when we put ourselves under the refuge of God's unfailing love, we find joy and purpose both in receiving and giving God's unfailing love in everyday life. What makes this beautiful story so beautiful is not that it ends with Ruth getting married. That's not actually the resolution of the story. What makes it so beautiful, she finds her refuge in the steadfast love of God. And as her great-grandson David wrote in Psalm 63, she found that God's unfailing love is better than life itself. That's the resolution in the story. And under the wings of God's unfailing love, everything changes. And I, I love the artist that our God has given to our church. And so we, we actually asked Tori Quill to design the artwork for this series. And she did an amazing job, didn't she? It's beautiful. Yes, let's thank Jesus for her. You see the wings of refuge, which represents God's unfailing love, and they're kind of like merging into the barley, which is the everyday life of common, ordinary, unlikely people. And together, those two things make a beautiful story. And so here, here's the theme of Ruth. When unlikely people with ordinary lives find shelter in the refuge of God's unfailing love, he writes beautiful stories of grace. That's a good story. That's a good message. So let's enter the story in the darkness that Ruth and Naomi found themselves before they experienced God's kindness. In the first five verses, we have 10 years, 10 years of history in five verses that just punch you in the gut. And this is trouble coming from every imaginable side. And so this story starts with four kinds of trouble. There's probably more, but there's at least four packed into these verses. Number one, it starts in political and cultural uncertainty. Verse one says that the story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Now, when you think judges, don't think black robes and gavels, okay? These judges were military leaders that God raised up to rescue his people. And if you look at a timeline, you can see kind of where the story of Ruth sits. It sits in that, that tan section there, the time of the judges, somewhere in between there, after the Israelites have entered Canaan, before the rule of Saul and David. And so it's a reminder that it's a real story in a real place at a real time. 
But it's also a reminder of the context, the, the political context in which this story took place and how unstable it was. When you look at the book of Judges, you find this constant cycle in the book of Judges. The people abandon the Lord in disobedience, and they worship idols instead of worshiping God. And then God in discipline allows the foreign nations around them to come and oppress them. And then in despair, the people cry out, they ask God for mercy, and God raises up a judge, a military hero, and he comes or she comes and rescues them. And for a time, the people have peace from their enemies, and then the cycle starts all over again. They forget God, they worship idols, and the same cycle repeats over and over and over and over in the book of Judges. And at the end of Judges, the assessment of the moral climate of the time is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So one moment, your favorite leader is in charge and you have hope and the next moment he's gone he or she compromises the people compromise and they're gone one moment it seems like the nation's heading in the right direction and the next moment it's steeped back in idolatry and even the best leaders you couldn't hope in because they ended up failing you and the morality of the culture changed as quickly as the wind And it is in this storm of instability and moral relativism that the story of Ruth takes place. And that should give us a lot of hope, right? Because even though America is not Israel, we don't want to make that that parallel, we can sympathize with a lot of the feelings that these people might have had. We live in a polarized political environment. We live live in a country that is, is steeped in moral relativism. And often we ask this question, like, is this, can this be a platform for God to show his grace? And just like in the book of Ruth, it may be that in the darkest of political times, the darkest of moral times, it may be this is actually the environment that God uses and chooses to display his grace. And the book of Ruth reminds us that it's not primarily as we protest, it's not primarily as we vote, not primarily as we hope leaders will make the right decisions, it's definitely not as our hopes rise and fall with the news cycle or as we react to the winds of change or debate on social media. It's, it's as we live ordinary lives of faithfulness and love in response to God's unfailing love for us in the middle of that climate, that God weaves beautiful stories. And, and I get it. I've got kids that are growing up, and my wife and I are wondering constantly, how do we raise kids in this culture? Like, Lord, what do we do? And you can ask that question in fear or in faith. If you ask it in fear, it ends up in cynicism and anger and isolation But if you ask it in faith, if you say, God, you you have, it was not an accident that I'm here in this place and time. It's not an accident that my kids are born in this place and time. And, And you love, because you show from the book of Ruth and the whole Bible, you love how to take dark stages of history and use them to display your grace. So will you please show me, God, how this moment in time, your grace can be displayed through me and through my family. 
and responding in faith and asking God to do something that sometimes we believe the lie. It's unlikely that God can do something here. But it may be the very place that God shows his grace most clearly. But there's a second thing. If that weren't enough, the political and cultural uncertainty, there's economic disaster. There was a famine in the land. Now, there's a really sad irony here because Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, and there was no bread. Canaan was a land flown with milk and honey, but there is no milk and honey. At this moment, there's a famine, and there's a bigger story behind this famine, but for a moment, try to imagine what it was like, and I know it's really hard for us. I think many of us have known what it's like to lose our jobs or struggle to put food on the table or to pay our bills, but very few of us know what it looks like, it feels like to be in a famine. And so just to give you an idea, a picture of, of what it's like to be in a famine, let me, uh, let me tell you about a famine that happened 10 years ago in Somalia. Between 2010 and 2012, 260,000 people died in Somalia. And over 6 million refugees were displaced. And this Somali mother tells an unthinkable story about her experience of famine. Wardo Muhammad Yusuf walked for two weeks with her one-year-old daughter on her back and her four-year-old son at her side to flee Somalia's drought and famine. When the boy collapsed near the end of the journey, she poured some of the little water she had on his head to cool him, but he was unconscious and could not drink. She asked other families traveling with them for help, but none stopped fearful for their own survival. Then the 29-year-old mother had to make a choice that no parent should have to make. Finally, I decided to leave him behind to his God on the road. Yusuf said later in an interview at a teeming refugee camp in Dadaab, Kenya, I'm sure that he was alive, and that is my heartbreak. I've never faced such a dilemma in my life. Now I'm reliving the pain of abandoning my child. I wake up at night to think about him. I feel terrified whenever I see a son of his age. And this is just a tip of the iceberg of the agony of famine. And Elimelech was faced with incredibly difficult choices. His two sons were named Maclon and Kilion. And back then, names mean, meant something. And Maclon's name means weak or sickly. And Kilion's name means frail or pining away. So it's very possible, we don't know for sure, but it's very possible that his kids were born with very poor, weak immune systems. And so their sickly nature would have been extra concern in a time of famine. Like, what do I do? There's no food and my kids get sick all the time. Do I stay in the promised land where God has placed us, near the tabernacle, near our community of faith, or do I risk leaving all of that to try to save the lives of my children. And perhaps as they're making this excruciating decision, they're asking, how can this, how can this be a story of grace? Maybe some of us ask the same question and, and not for a moment do I want to denigrate the reality of a famine that's real and painful. But maybe some of us are facing littler, smaller famines in our life. Maybe there's a pattern of sickness and pain that you can't get out of. Maybe you have a famine of hope in your life. 
Maybe as a mom, you have a famine of time and patience and creativity. Maybe you have a a famine of friendships. Maybe there's simply a famine of fruitfulness in your life. And what I want us to see is that even though those famines aren't as drastic as this one, if God can, in the middle of this famine, write a story of grace, then maybe, just maybe, in your famine, God can write a story of grace. The stage gets darker. On top of famine, on top of political instability, is spiritual failure. Spiritual failure. I mentioned a few minutes ago that there's a story behind this famine. And this particular famine was actually because of the disobedience of God's people. It was discipline. Now, to be clear, not every famine is this, okay? Famines are caused by natural disasters, by corrupt government, by, by uh, worldwide greed and ambivalence. Lots of reasons famines are produced today. But this particular famine, we are told exactly why it happened. Because in Deuteronomy 11, God warns his people before they go into the promised land. He says, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Because God will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. And so this famine was God reminding his people, I'm the one that sends the rain. I'm the one that that gives you everything that you have and enjoy. And the appropriate response to this particular famine was repentance. It was to cry out to God to turn back to him. And and think about how this affected people. There were faithful people in Israel that did not commit idolatry while those around them did. And they had to go into famine too. And so both those who were disobedient and those who were faithful had to experience famine. That's really hard. To have to experience suffering, not just because of your own sin, but because of the sin of other people. Now, where Elimelech and Naomi were spiritually, we don't exactly know. But we do know that they made a less than ideal choice to move their family 60 miles away to Moab. And if you see the map up here, they took this trek out of Jerusalem down into Moab, and it might seem like an innocuous choice to us, right? He's just trying to provide for his family. In fact, the text says he went to visit there, but then it says that he ended up living there. So maybe his intent was just to go temporarily to get some food for his family. But at this point in Israel's history, this was a really dangerous move for his family. God's command and purpose for his people was that they would be near Jerusalem to worship him, to have the the presence of the tabernacle, to be in the community of God's people. And so the mission in the Old Testament was come and see. In the New Testament, it's go and tell. And so this was not a missions trip like Jonah. They were leaving their community of faith. They were leaving the place that they worshiped, and they were going from the frying pan, because it wasn't ideal even in Israel, but they were going from the frying pan into the fire. Moab had enslaved Israel for 18 years. They hated Israel. They hated Israel's God. Of the many hundreds of gods that Moab worshipped, their primary one was Kamash, to whom they offered human sacrifice. And so for Elimelech to take his family to Moab, as hard of a decision as that was, to, to rescue them from physical harm, he was putting them in spiritual 
But what does God do? He doesn't dwell on Elimelech's failure. And even on the stage of what was potential failure by Elimelech and Naomi, God writes a story of grace. And I think this is often the hardest one for us as God's people to reckon with, right? How can God use my failure for good? How can God use my, my sin even? How can God redeem that? How can God take even the, the, the wrong choices that I, that I make and somehow, somehow redeem those? But he can't. And our sin and our failure cannot derail the story of God. They cannot derail God's promises. They cannot derail God's unfailing love. And the same is true for sins committed against us. And that's even harder. That's even harder. God sees the suffering that you've experienced because of someone else's failure. God sees the wounds in your soul and maybe even in your body from being abused or being neglected. God knows the stories of, of you who on Mother's Day do not feel joy, but feel the sadness of a mother who is absent or neglected you or abused you. And Ruth is a reminder that all of that pain and all of that sorrow and all of that lament that we experience, God can, over time, redeem and make it a platform to display his love. The stage gets even darker. On top of uncertainty and disaster and spiritual failure, there are three women that are aching from deep personal loss. Ruth and Orpah, they've lost their husbands. Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons, all in a span of a few years. And Naomi's family's decimated. And this was really, in this time, a death sentence for Naomi. To lose her husband and her two sons was not just to lose their presence, it was to lose provision and inheritance. K. Lawson Younger says that being a widow in Israel, having lost your sons, was the worst fate that an Israelite woman could experience. Because everything was connected to having either your husband or your sons inherit the land and to provide for your family. And so Naomi was was in a really hard place. That's why she says in chapter two that God has been kind to the living and the dead. I think she's talking about herself, that she's as good as dead to be a widow in Israel. And as Naomi stood looking at the grave of her husband and her two sons, maybe she asked the question, how, how can this be a story of God's love? And many of you have experienced deep loss. There are empty seats at your dinner table and empty beds in your home and an empty place in your heart <clears throat> that you wish were not empty. There are memories that you hope will not fade and memories that you wish could have been made. And you feel deeply the pain of loss. You've lost husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and babies in the womb and friends. And we often ask, especially with some of those that feel deeper than others, we ask, how, how can this God, how can this be a story of grace? 
And so what I'm praying is that you'll see through this story, you'll ask the question again, Lord, maybe, maybe there is grace here. Maybe you can write a story of your faithful love in the middle of this loss. And in the middle of this kind of grief and disaster, there's, there's no easy answers. I want to be quick to say that. I mean, we, we read in two minutes, 10 years of pain, and we've spent about 20 minutes talking about it. But this, this pain and loss took years to heal from. It took years of questions, years of, of wrestling with God for Ruth and Naomi. And so the answer when we're faced with this personal loss is to ask the question, God, what what might you be up to? Paul Miller in his book, A Loving Life, which walks through the story of Ruth, and I highly recommend that you get it. He says about suffering that it is the crucible for love. He says, we don't learn how to love anywhere else. Don't misunderstand. Suffering doesn't create love, but it is a hothouse where love can emerge. Why is that? The great barrier to love is ego the life of the self. In long-term suffering, if you don't give in to self-pity, slowly, almost imperceptibly, self dies. This death of self offers ideal growing conditions for love. Love will not grow if you check out and give in to the seductive call of bitterness and cynicism or seek comfort elsewhere. We have to hang in there with the story that God has permitted in our lives. And as we endure, as we keep showing up for life when it makes no sense, we learn to love, and God shows up too. Those last two sentences are so important. God's stories of grace are very different than ours. What we imagine would be a good story, God imagines very differently sometimes. And it, and it takes faith to say, God, I know you're good. And right now, this story doesn't make any sense. But I'm going to let you write the story. And when we hang in there with the story that God has for our lives, when we keep showing up, when we keep asking questions, when we keep enduring, we'll see that God's unfailing love can be seen in our lives in ways that we just never thought possible. And I've seen that in my life, that God is more concerned about my faith and my love than anything else my hands hold on to. He is so intent on increasing those things that whatever loss I endure so that those things can endure is worth it. And it's really hard to say that in the middle of it. But on the other side of it, when you look back, you can say, God, I'm glad that you are so for me. You are so for my faith and my love. To experience this loss made me run to you, made me find my refuge in you, built my faith in you and in the story that you're writing. And what gives us the ultimate reason that we can walk out of here with hope today is another man that was born in Bethlehem. Not Elimelech, but Jesus. And Jesus walked onto the most unlikely stage for grace that there was. He didn't just walk into a nation where there was political chaos. He walked into a whole world in chaos because it had rejected God as their king. 
Jesus didn't just walk into a world that was suffering from famine of the body. He walked into a world that was suffering from famine of the soul. Jesus stepped not just into the spiritual failure of a few or of a nation, but into the spiritual cosmic failure of the world in treason against its creator. He stepped into a world where there's not just death and loss of life, but eternal loss. That's the stage that Jesus stepped onto on the cross. And as he's on the cross with his arms outstretched and he's crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the enemies of sin and Satan and death and hell are launching their attack at Jesus. It does not look like a likely place for God to display his grace. But it is the most likely place of all. Because it is there in that dark moment that God's love was most clearly on display for all of us to see. And if God, in the person of Jesus, can step into that dark moment, that dark story, and display his love in ways that have never been seen before, then God can take every one of our losses, every one of our famines, every one of our concerns about the culture in which we live, and he can make it a stage on which he displays his amazing grace. So as we enter uh, communion time, I just want to give you three questions to think of in response this morning. Number one, really simply, and we'll give some space and time to pray, where do you see an unlikely stage for grace in your life? Maybe it's a relationship that seems like a desert, Maybe it's a loss that you're grieving over. Maybe it's your current stage of parenting. Maybe it's simply the frustrations of, of everyday life. You look at it and you say, I, I have no idea how this can be a stage for God's grace. Take a couple minutes and um, let's, just, let's just ask the Spirit. Spirit, show us. What is it? What, what desolate, desert place do you want us to identify that feels hopeless, that feels like it can't be a stage to display your grace. So let's take a few minutes, family, and just, just listen to the Spirit, ask Him to show you what's this place in your life. And second, let me just invite you to pray. I'm not going to try to tie a neat little bow around this, but just to pray, Father, will you show me how this unlikely place might actually be an ideal stage to show your unfailing love. Put that in your own words. Father, show me how this desert place might be a place that can bloom with the flowers of your love. And then third, I just want to invite you to look away from yourself for a moment and just ask, who do I know that may be struggling in a hard place and needs my prayer and encouragement. Think about the people in your missional community, your DNA group, people here you have relationship with. Just ask the Spirit right now, who has a need? Is there anyone you want me to pray for?